You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Here's Nate. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 1 begins with the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now, this chapter in Proverbs is interesting because we are introduced at the beginning of it to a new author. The author of chapter 30 is this man named Agur, the son of Jekka. Now, there have been many attempts to identify the author, but the reality is both Agur and Jekka are biblically unknown. We don't know who they are as we search the pages of scripture. One thing we do know is that the style of the Proverbs that will follow in this chapter are very different from all that has come before in the book of Proverbs. So this leads some to believe that this Agur figure cannot be Solomon, though on the other hand, Solomon was certainly, it seems, skilled enough to be able to change his style. Uh, some believe this is a fictional title for man, quote-unquote, in general. So the reality is, though, we do not know with certainty who this figure is, only that the compilers recognize this as inspired of God. Now, the Proverbs in his collection, this 30th chapter, begin with a very human experience. I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. This is fascinating. There's a bit of a, a psalm type of perspective found here. Just an honesty, a willingness to declare the fatigue that is happening in his life. Now, after making that opening statement, he then goes on to highlight a few different weaknesses in his own life. He says in verse 2, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now in saying those statements or asking those questions, Agur highlights his own stupidity, uh, interestingly enough, and his own lack of understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. And he asks five questions to prove his point. And the point that he's trying to make here is that he is not infinite in understanding and wisdom and knowledge, but that he is finite. And what he senses he cannot, nor could anyone do, is number one, ascend into heaven. That means to go into another dimension. He sensed that he was physically limited to his own time and space. Number two, he said that he could not gather the wind in his fists. In other words, he could not harness the wind. He could not direct the wind. He could not tell it where to go. And he could not, number three, wrap up the waters in a garment. 
In other words, he noticed and observed that even though the best efforts of man would often be directed to pushing water in a certain direction or retaining water for future reserves, the reality is that water overwhelms quite often mankind. He could not wrap up the waters in a garment. He could not establish, number four, the ends of the earth. In other words, he was not the one to have established the galaxies. And finally and fifthly, he said, I cannot know his name or his son's name. In other words, if God does not reveal himself to me, Agur was saying, I could never know the Lord. Uh, this is a statement concerning uh, the need for God to reveal himself to man and for the cross to reveal God to man because we would never be able to find God on our own. In all of these statements, what Agur is preaching is that revelation is required. Revelation is required. In other words, uh, when it comes to who God is, we cannot discover him on our own. He must reveal himself to us. And so it is fitting for humanity to look around on the earth and ask the question, if there is an infinite God who is unknowable to human flesh, how might he reveal himself to humanity if he desired to do so? And I think by looking at, around at creation, we could come to the conclusion that there is a God who would love to be known by human beings because of the beauty of the design of what he has made and the way in which he has made it to benefit humanity. And so you would guess potentially that there's a God who wants to be known but we cannot discover him on our, no, our own. He must reveal himself to us. And so he reveals himself to us through the creation on one hand, also through his word and ultimately through the cross of Christ. And as you look into scripture, as you look to the cross, as you see the resurrection, all of these are elements that you could say, yeah, that seems to be the way that God would reveal himself to us. And now what we do with that revelation is we go to search out that revelation, to discover that revelation, to study the cross, to study the word of God, uh, and even in a sense to study his created order so that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of him. Now all of this from Agur is in comparison to the knowledge of the Holy One. So this man... Agur is simply walking humbly before the Lord. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, as he opened that line of teaching, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first sentence of, of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Agur definitely had that humility, that poverty of spirit. He knew that he did not know all things and that he needed revelation in his life. Now, verse 5 he continues on by saying, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Now, this is a statement concerning the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture is simply the doctrine that would say that all the words in Scripture are God's words 
in such a way that to disbelieve or to disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Uh, put in New Testament terms, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says it this way, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when Paul spoke of Scripture there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, he used the Greek word graphe, uh, which is a technical term that is always used to describe the Old Testament and then is used in the New Testament to describe itself. And so what we can understand is the all scripture is the Old and New Testament, that this word of God is beneficial to us for us to be uh, taught with, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. And the reason why it is beneficial is because it is all breathed out by God. Now, Agur, even in his era, understood that man should not, he says, verse 6, add to God's words. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12 said, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor shall you take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God and that, that I command you. Of course, the entire Bible concludes with Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19 with a warning. And the warning goes like this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So the Bible, Scripture, it is enough. So not only is Agur highlighting the authority of Scripture, but in a sense the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need to add to his words. We do not need to take away from his words. The sufficiency of Scripture could be said like this. It means that Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly and both of these definitions that I've given of these theological terms have come from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology so here Agur is affirming these concepts that are all important to the Christian life that we can find all that God has said on particular topics and that the amount of scripture that God has given at each stage of redemptive history was sufficient and that since God has spoken, we can learn from the Lord. And so Agur was confident of that reality, that the word of God is enough. Then he goes on in verse 7 in his proverb, or collection of Proverbs, and says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, this is the first of six numerical sayings in this chapter. Uh, here he has two things and some of the others will have uh, will be collections of uh, more than two things, five things, six things, seven things. 
But here he has two requests. Request number one, remove from me falsehood and lying. Uh, request number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, the reality is that a person could walk with the Lord and be wealthy, or a person could walk with the Lord and find themselves impoverished. For Paul's part in the New Testament, he had learned how to be content in both situations. He learned how to be brought low and how to abound. He learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he had said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Particularly, I can be in either state by the power of Jesus. I could be poor. I could be wealthy. I can do both by the power of Christ. And by the way, it does take the power of Christ to be not only able to walk through poverty, but able to walk through wealth. Because so often wealth can uh, quench your desire for God. You can begin to lean on your wealth and your vitality begins to evaporate because you are not pressing in to the Lord. Paul knew how to do either. He knew how to walk with the Lord to be content in either state. And Agur had the same kind of idea. He, he said, I'm praying that the Lord will uh, keep me from both of those extremes, lest I become full and deny the Lord, saying, who is the Lord? Or lest I steal because I am in need. And what I mean is that uh, he had not come to the place like Paul of saying, the Lord will help me in either state, but it's that he understood that there was a danger in either of those places. Uh, the vast majority of Christians will fall into Agur's middle class kind of prayer request. You know, Lord, don't give me too little. Lord, don't give me uh, too much. But the reality is we should be able to say, Lord, whatever state you are going to put me in, help me to walk with you. If I am full, help me not to deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I am poor, help me not to compromise my faith and begin to steal due to that poverty. So that is Agur's concern, that he'd forget the Lord or that he would uh, refuse to walk with the Lord, that he'd cash in his integrity through sin. Then he says in verse 10, Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you, and you be held guilty. Now this proverb is interesting because it reinforces the dignity of the servant. You know, in the sense of don't slander a servant to his master. Uh, but it also speaks of the importance of minding your own business. You know, hey, don't slander a servant to his master. Uh, that, that's not your business. That's not your place. Next, Agur gets into four undesirable behaviors in chapter 30, verse 11 to 14. Undesirable behavior number one is being a disrespectful person. He says in verse 11, There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. So the first of these four, and each one will begin with the phrase, There are those who which literally means generation, class, or kind. He says, there is a generation, class, or kind of people who, number one, curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. This is disrespect in its highest form. Uh, if, a, if a person cannot bless, but instead curses their parents, 
How can they truly be effective in this world or effective in the body of Christ? In order to bless people, you must be able to respect their position more than their performance. You see, there will be times where every human being lets you down, but you have to be able to remember that they are made in the image of God. You have to respect the fact that God loves them, that God has given them life. And if you cannot do that with your parents, if you cannot say, I am thankful that they have, in a sense, themselves given me life, I am thankful that they have the position of being parents in my life. If you're unable to respect them, even for just the position that they occupy, even if they don't have good performance to go with that position, if you can't do that, then you're going to have such a hard time ministering to human beings. This is required to do ministry, to be used by God. So a disrespectful attitude towards people is crucial. And Agur had wanted nothing to do with it. Then he said in verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. The second undesirable attitude was someone who is self-righteous. What he's saying is they thought they were clean, but they were actually still dirty. They were not washed of their filth. And what he's saying is it's not your own view that matters, but it's the eyes of the Lord. And then number three in verse 13, he says, there are those how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. Now, Agur was a humble man, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter. So it's hard for him to see pride that was so lofty. Uh, this, this high and exalted feeling about the self. And uh, it's a very antichrist spirit. Daniel chapter 11 tells us what the future antichrist will be like. He will, Daniel 11 verse 36, exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. And there are some who are like that. And Agur wanted to put off that perspective and attitude. And, and then finally, the fourth in this little cluster, he says, verse 14, there are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among mankind. And so here he expressed that those who oppress the poor and needy are like crazy monsters, complete with teeth like swords and fangs like knives. And it is possible for those who have wealth to become too oppressive, uh, to become, uh, you know, scary to those who are under them. Uh, James spoke of those in James 5, 1 through 4, who through their wealth had really oppressed their laborers and that the cry of the laborers had come to the Lord of hosts. Now in verse 15 and 16, uh, Agur begins to talk about four insatiable things. In other words, four things that never have enough. He says first, verse 15, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that that never says enough. So here the idea is that these are elements that are never completely satisfied. The four that he mentions, number one, the grave, Sheol. Number two, 
the barren womb, which longs to give birth. It's never satisfied, never has enough. Number three, land that is never satisfied with water. And then number four, fire, destruction. These are all emblematic, it seems, of the unsatisfied human spirit. You see, there's just something within the human spirit. There's just where we, we just can't get enough. And so it is important for us to go to the Lord because the Lord is the only one who can satisfy. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well who had, by the way, pursued so many different men to try to find that perfect relationship. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what Jesus can do. Verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Here, Agur imagined a scene in a valley where ravens plucked out the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother. Uh, this is a severe warning. Uh, that Agur is giving, and really just backing up a theme of the book of Proverbs, obedience to parents. Then in verse 18, he talks about four amazing things. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Now, each of these three and four things comes from nature. They're all wonderful, which means surpassing or incomprehensible in Agur's sight. And this ancient proverb, it's beautiful because he just slowed down to observe the natural realm. Now, what do all of these have in common? Well, some have said, well, uh, all are non-traceable. You know, you look at an eagle in the sky or the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. There's no textbook there. There's no, you know, path to retrace after they've gone their way. And then some have thought, well, all of them perhaps overcome a difficult element. You know, a man wooing a young woman and, you know, acquiring her to be his bride, it's a can be a difficult thing, like a ship on the high seas or a serpent on the rock or an eagle in the sky. But some have observed this seems to be a statement about four things where there are really no clear paths to take. In other words, when an eagle is in the sky, there's no road that he's following. When a serpent is on a rock, there's no clear path that he is moving upon. And when a ship is on the high seas, there's no you know, clear road to take. And that would lead to kind of the final crescendo of, you know, that's really how it is a lot of times with uh, the dating and uh, kind of world, you know, the, that in one culture you might have people dating, in other cultures you might have people having arranged marriages. It's just... There's no clear path to take. And Agur just kind of wanted to say, these are amazing things. They're wonderful. I don't know how it all works, but it works. Then in verse 20, he says, 
This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. This is another amazing thing. The adulteress who seemingly feels no guilt claiming to be innocent. Now in verse 21, he goes on to describe uh, four unfair things. He says, under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. So here the question that we have to ask is, what do, in these four unfair things, the slave, the fool, the unloved woman, and the maidservant have in common? Now, all of these shifts in a person's life, it seems. A slave becomes a king, a fool is filled with food, an unloved woman gets a husband, and a maidservant displaces her mistress. These are shifts in each one of their lives, and he says, these all make the earth tremble. In other words, each one of these shifts can be tumultuous for the people that are involved. You know, if a slave becomes a king, there's going to be a radical learning curve. He might be a tyrant. He might be completely unprepared for such a high position. And when that occurs and someone who's unfit to lead is thrust into leadership, be ready, man. The earth is going to shake. Uh, it's going to be a tumultuous time. And then the fool might make life difficult for everyone around him because he won't know how to handle his newfound wealth. Or an unloved woman might put a crushing weight on her husband or be embittered that, he, that she is still unloved, though married. And then the maidservant who displaces her mistress shall not behave graciously but rudely for her whole position that she's acquired is, is really inappropriate. So all of these speak of being in the lane that is yours in Christ and not trying to aspire to something that is not for you to have in Jesus. Four things then, verse 24, are on earth are small but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. All these things are small, but wise. Ants work together to store up food for the summer. Rock badgers... Find homes in the cliffs. Locusts use teamwork, though they have no king. And the lizard is small, yet lives in king's palaces. These are high achievers. God helps them. And it just kind of encourages the humble, faithful, hard-working person that they can be fruitful unto God. And then finally, we close out Agur's Proverbs with this final set of three things with a last Proverb. He says, three things, verse 29, are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. This last grouping of animals is different than the first. The other was small and wise, but this group is stately and strong. Now, there's room for everybody in the body of Christ. Those small, but also those large, those who are very timid and gun-shy and those who are bold and loud. 
If you have been foolish, verse 32, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Here, Agur closes his prophecies by saying, The foolishness of self-exaltation and the devising of evil comes back upon the guilty. He uses two similes in this last verse, churning the milk and twisting the nose. Both involve a pressing. The first makes butter from milk. The second draws blood from the nose. And here he says, so don't press anger. That will produce strife. So we know that we are to be silent. We are to put our hand to our mouth. That's what he says. Put your hand to your mouth. So many of our problems come from what we say. And so we need the Holy Spirit to help hold us back from some of the things that could cause great harm. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.